Hello, Annie Trenders. Welcome to the Girl Talku, hosted by the ladies of Anime Trending. We are back with another fun topic on the table. My name is Gracie, and I am joined by. Hello, I am Isabel, and this is Agnes. So, without further ado, the Girl Talku today will be about beautiful cinematography in anime. Cinematography as a topic. Is kind of difficult to understand. I actually had to ask one of my best friends, who is a screenwriting major, so she very much is in the film industry, to actually explain to me the difference between cinematography, or more specifically, exactly what cinematography is. And to put it simply, cinematography is the movement of the cameras in a particular scene. So it makes a lot more sense if you think about it in live-action movies, because there are actual cameras. So when you remember how the scenes transition, when you remember how the cameras or what the viewers are seeing、uh, from the perspective as they follow a as they follow the protagonist or the antagonist and how the scenes are shot、uh, specifically and moving, that's. The best way that I can describe cinematography to you, but to put it plain and simple, it's camera movement. However, we are talking about anime, and that becomes a little more difficult because there are no literal cameras involved with anime, since everything is animated and drawn, and very much not live action. But cinematography does exist in anime still, as we, as everyone who has seen anime can attest to, in regards to how things transition, in regards to how you feel like there is an actual camera following a lot of the anime characters, even though obviously there is no real camera. And to put it simply, cinematography and animation tend to go hand in hand a lot of times. Animation is movement, and cinematography is movement, and Anything that feels like a quote-unquote camera is moving is literal animation happening. But when we think animation, we still kind of like to think just straight-up fight scenes rather than how the scene is particularly positioned for our eyes to to look at and for you know which characters to follow per se. So there is a difference in regards to these two concepts, but they are much more heavily tied because once again, anime does not have literal cameras to do the quote-unquote like recording work. So, with that whole little spiel out of the way, hopefully it makes sense for people listening. Today, we are going to talk about some of the anime whose cinematography has just really stood out to us. This week, Agnes, it is your turn to start us off. So, please go ahead and let us know. You know, which anime has stood out to you in regards to its cinematography? Was it a particular scene? Was it something very consistent throughout the anime? And let us know why you like the cinematography so much. For sure, yeah, I like cinematography quite a bit, and I think it has changed a lot in the anime industry in the past, I think, decade or so, in which the camera movement has. Contributed greatly to how we perceive a certain scene, rather than having it be kind of static, or it's moving in, let's say, like a second perspective or a third perspective that makes the scene feel very dull in general.、Uh, so, without further ado, I will introduce my first pick. I actually have three picks to highlight for today, but I'll pick do my first one. The first one is from Fate Grand Babylonia. I know I've talked about this scene. I think I talked about it twice now on this channel,、mm-hmm. but I want to say that this was one of the shows. Although I played the game quite a bit, I loved the game. This is one of the shows that I truly felt like I was watching a size matters film in the sense that the enemies and the threats are. Actually, larger than life, and you actually feel horrified and terrified while trying to fight through these enemies. And in this particular scene, it is the、uh, Medusa, it's the Gorgon versus Fujimaru and、um, and Mashu and their associates in Babylon, and trying to ward off her attempts at trying to take over the city of Uruk in Babylonia. And here in this final stand, we have two servants or characters that are summoned from a different time period, and and who are contributing in this fight. One of them is Ushiwa Kamuru, who is the、uh, the I believe the younger brother of Yotsuhide. Gracie, correct me if I'm wrong. From the Heian period. Uh, I am actually not too certain. So,、uh, as in, like, I'm not saying you're wrong. It's more like my memory is actually not too certain about that. So you're probably right. Is what I'm trying to say. Oh yeah, it's oh no, that's not that's not the right person. It's a he's the half brother of Yori 
Tomo from the Minamoto clan. Yes. Oh, 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 okay. Yes, I understand. Yes, sorry. I I misspoke. (laughs) That's my bad. So there is Uchiwa Kamuru, and then you have uh, Leonidas from Sparta. And both of them are essentially human heroic spirits. They are not mythical beasts. They are not godlike in origin. And they stand so small against this massive gorgon that stands like several skyscrapers tall. And the way that the camera tilts around them as they try to fend off her attacks is actually dazzling because they're so tiny in comparison to her, but they still deal enough damage to chip away at her defenses and attacks. And especially in Ushiwa Kamuru's final stand, where she is now, uh, like she kind of, she has a special ability where she sort of multiplies herself into separate like clones. And all of, she only has like eight clones of her, but each of those eight clones are enough to deal damage to Medusa or Gorgon's massive like tiger-like tails and heads that come out and they continue to slice it to ribbons even though they're so small in the presence of a larger enemy that is has such unfathomable power. And I just thought while watching that scene, I thought to myself, wow, the cinematography that really shows how much the size differs really accentuates that fear in you. And the, the harrowing part about this scene is that the heroes actually almost fail on their first attempt because Gorgon doesn't die from this. And usually with these big like kaiju type of battles, the heroes usually win during the first fight um, if it's not like a Godzilla fight or anything like that. And even then, when you do have a gargantuan monster that is squaring off against like fantasy kingdoms or armies, there's usually more of like a still shot of, you know, the monster being bombarded by various strikes of lightning or flares of magic and things like that but there's no zoom in close-up look of the individual actually pelting the monster with all of their strength and with their spells and so that's why i really liked i wanted to highlight this scene because i was so blown away by how big the gorgon felt it she didn't feel that big when i was playing her in game so it's it's like the way they framed it and sort of like the window into the anime is it's like she towers over you is that what yes exactly Okay, yeah, she yeah. basically towers it. If you think of like any King Kong or you think of like a Godzilla movie that you've seen in like the past like decade or so, that's the same feeling, but translated into anime, which is very rare, I would say. And this is a show that came out, I think, before, um, a little bit before like Attack on Titan, like the final season. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, that's that's just basically what I have. I, it's funny because I do distinctly remember you mentioning this fight. I actually don't remember for which topic you had mentioned it before. I think it was just amazing fight scenes in general. <laughs> that was my highlight. Okay, got it. Uh, yeah, no, I remember you talking about this scene, but yeah, it's clearly made a big impact to you. I know what you're talking about, though, in regards to that feeling of massive, like that massiveness of things. Uh, I don't know how anime does it. In fact, I have no idea how anime ever manages to use animation to make it feel like an actual camera is spanning or like going at a particular angle but it is a really fascinating thing because I think it makes it a little more magical when it's very fantasy-esque so you know this wouldn't be a thing in real life but the fact that they're able to magnify it that way as if they have a real life camera is a very insane and magical thing so I get why absolutely Yeah, and I think the reason why it feels so fantastical in anime is that if you think about it, all of these artists and mangakas and just animators in general have a camera inside of their head and are able to draw how they want their perspective to turn out versus if you have a camera and you know, like, you know, people doing TikTok videos and stuff like that, they kind of swoop around for the right angle. The camera does most of the work. Your human eye doesn't naturally track that at all. Um because, you know, your your brain is more occupied with the human interactions, the heat of the moment, etc. But the camera is what helps you aid in finding the right shot. And you're just like, oh, wow, this elevates the current scenario that we're in. Like, let's say it's a fight scene um, between like two people for like boxing or something. But in anime, the animator has to do both of them at the same time. They have to be the camera and also draw it at the same time, too. And that is a magnificent feat that I don't think any of us here have that. <laughs> 
Oh, no, no, definitely not. <laughs> I, and I love that what you said about how the camera is the animator's brains. Like, oh, chef's kiss. That was, that was a perfect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like kudos to animators in the anime industry because they're so underpaid for just a valuable and an amazing talent that they have. Okay, well, I'm glad that you talked about this one. I could just hear the impact it left on you. So yeah. if you're starting off with something so like powerful, what are your other two that you want to highlight? Okay, so the second one that I want to talk about is also another show that I've talked about on this podcast, uh, specifically for the Anime Aesthetics podcast, and this mm. is Redline, okay. uh, a very Redline. impactful Madhouse movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Isabel can attest to it. Um, but I want to highlight that there is a different type of perspective shift in the cinematography for Redline. Unlike Bab, although it does have the big gargantuan aliens and this massive racetrack that, that's intergalactical and it feels like very big and open, you feel kind of odd and scared. I don't want to highlight most of that, but I want to highlight how they do speed. When you're trying to translate the concept of like an exhilarating force and speed as you're hurtling through this racetrack, but in animation. Mm -hmm. And the way that they do that, that I notice in Redline, which is, I think, really amazing, is that they squish a lot of their characters into these, these like long, narrow, compact cars, their racing vehicles, spaceships. And then when they, when they basically pump into hyperdrive, they drop like this, this weird, like nitro, um, gem looking item into their car, it basically kickstarts their engine. And when they burst through the race line, the, the way that they animate it is that the characters are basically elongated. They're stretched really thin as they're bursting through the line. And it does make you feel like, oh my gosh, your body's being compacted in this tiny car and you're going so fast that everything around you kind of like strips away. And so that I thought was like, wow, that's really good cinematography because you feel it viscerally even though you're just watching it. I've never done racing myself, but I feel that I am racing with them. I like felt what you were saying. Like I had this grin <laughs> on my face when you were describing it and I've seen trailers for it, so I know what you're talking about. But Isabel, you watched the movie alongside Agnes, right? I think I probably watched it after she mentioned okay, it. Talk about it. Okay. So... But yeah, I can tell that exactly what you said, Agnes, like the feeling of that space and then all the elements of, you know, them driving is so intense and it yeah. just adds to that. So you, you feel like you're right there and you're like, whoa, blown away by it, really. Yeah, it's it's a tight fit. Uh, the, the main character's car, JP's car is already small enough. And then in the final scenes in the movie, he hooks up with main girl Sonishi as they drive together in the same car that's only meant for one person. And she's like tight squeeze against him. They're like sharing a pedal mm -hmm. at that point. <laughs> so it's like, it's really tight. <laughs> well, I, I do want to note to you too, um, or I guess more specifically Agnes, that a lot of people started watching Redline after yes! you had mentioned it for yes! anime. Yes! Madhouse so. credit. Let's go. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It's a fantastic show. It almost meant them make made them go bankrupt, but it's great. It's wonderful. <laughs> and it's a true testament to hand-drawn animation, I think. Like computer generated animation and CGI has gone a long way to help improve animators' lives. But sometimes there's something about hand-drawn that gives a, a very mystic quality to it. Well, okay, so that is your second pick. So what is your third highlight? Oh man, I'm just blasting through this. <laughs> uh, my third pick is going to be from a very recent anime that I started watching called Tokyo 24th Ward. Ah, uh, I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to highlight the most is actually the parkour that's shown in the first episode by one of the main characters, Shuta, the blue-haired boy. And why I wanted to highlight this is because when I was younger and when I used to really like Assassin's Creed, I watched a lot of those live action parkour videos of people dressed cosplaying as Assassin's Creed characters and just vaulting off of rooftops. Did you like try to imagine yourself no. as one <laughs> you of know, them? Yes, I did. <laughs> I definitely did. And I think a lot of people did because it's just so cool. It's very like badass. And you can actually see characters in the game of Assassin's Creed do the same thing. And so watching it in, and there's already actually been an anime that came out that's about parkour called Prince of Stride, but it didn't really deliver the same kind of feeling and exhilaration. Mm. 
24th Ward somehow in that short, like, 15 minutes of the characters kind of scrambling around to save the current plight that they're in, manages to squeeze in a really nice uh, perspective shot of Shuta doing parkour over the 24th Ward while he's racing to a train track. And this also reminded me quite a bit of watching parkour scenes from, like, uh, Into the Spider-Verse with Miles Morales or any, like, uh, Spider-Man movie with, like, Andrew Garfield and stuff like that where you see the camera kind of swoops in mm, to show how, I know what you're talking about. Right? Okay. How the camera, like, swoops in to show the character, like, swinging in between um, street lamps scaling up buildings and then vaulting over like pipes and stuff that and infrastructure that's on the rooftops those are really hard like i can't imagine myself even squeezing through any of that but they did it the the animation studio did it so well for tokyo 24th war that i feel like i'm watching into the spider-verse or i'm watching an assassin's creed parkour video (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i completely understand what you were talking about in that moment because it really did feel like a camera was like yeah it does it really does yeah like a like a like actually like runs drone because he has a he has a drone right that Mm -hmm. follows in the sky it feels like that drone was almost recording shoot that as he was you know parkouring over stuff yeah no i totally get what you're trying to say and it's it's like bad i guess bad for me because i love those things so much that i kind of almost just want tokyo 24th war to just be straight action and chase sequences <laughs> oh no I absolutely yeah. it, like too much because of that feeling of exhilaration and there was one where he like jumped across the buildings or and it was like kind of funny because he was freaking out because he was like a human body should not be able to do this but i'm somehow doing it and it really did feel like you were just sort of falling in the sky with him because of the way that they drew like the air and like how it's like you're sort of like diving down it's all it's all insane because it really is yeah Yeah. (laughs) it feels yeah the movement is just incredible in the uh the cinematography it's different from i guess like more linear cinematography where like you know in cowboy bebop and that really famous fight scene in the train Mm. where it's kind of more linear and Mm -hmm. it's more like close-up perspectives versus in 24th ward it's very like acrobatic and it goes in loops and swirls and it's really mesmerizing to watch and you actually don't feel dizzy from watching it either Mm-mm, no, there are some there's some action animes out there that do a lot of cinematography where the camera is very rocky to show like, let's say a character gets hit across the cheek by a punch and then they go like tumbling. But then the camera shakes so much, the perspective shakes so much that you don't really have a grasp of what's going on. And you're actually feeling a bit disoriented as a viewer. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I actually because I can think of a live action movie that had that issue. A lot of people had trouble with the first Hunger Games movie because mm. they purposefully did the shaky cam and everything to make you feel like you're running alongside the characters. But unfortunately, they did it. A l- they committed a little too much where a lot of the audience members actually had a headache because of just how shaky yeah. it was. So I get what you're trying to say in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. But those are just my thoughts. All right. Well, thank you for sharing those. Um, those are great choices. And I'm really excited because I knew most of them. So. Yeah. yeah. And most of them are very familiar to all of us here and especially to Isabel, too, because she was the one that started watching Tokyo 24th Ward. How did you feel about that scene, too, Isabel, now that I, now that I think about it? No, yeah, I completely agree with you. I, you know, the first half of that, I, w- I was wondering where this was going. And then when that parkour scene came in, it just added to the thrill of the last half of the first episode, really. Agreed. So yeah. it helped a lot. And I mean, yeah, I like that you mentioned Prince of Stride as well, because I quite like that because I thought it was a different take on sports. Uh, anime. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the scenes were just not as great, I, I would say, or like as detailed yeah. as Tokyo 24th wrote ward and yeah i wish i wish princess dried had more of that i think it would have elevated it more but it didn't have that um so like the focus on you know where the camera is and in relation to the person and sometimes even i personally even like watching parkour videos just from that first person yeah perspective yeah, yeah, just yeah, to yeah, see yeah. where they jump when they have the gopro mm-hmm. and then you're just seeing like the dizzying heights as they yeah. descend down yeah that's exactly. a thrill <laughs> 
as Gracie sits here being feeling uncomfortable with that. <laughs> oh no, no, I'm okay with that. So I I can't do roller coasters because I am a coward. So it's simply, um, <laughs> That's okay. That's but fair. I I do. But what's funny is I'll do the 3D rides. You know where it feels like you're on a roller coaster, but you're actually not. So I I get what you're saying about that. Like that sort of adrenaline. So. Mm-hmm. And I think the issue with Prince of Stride, why it didn't take off as well, even though it was labeled as a parkour anime, was because they have kind of like planned obstacle courses. Mm. And there's not a lot of city obstruction to do like fancy parkour. It was what people was expecting. Because a lot of parkouring comes from, you know, how to get from point A to point B in a very, very cluttered landscape. And that's usually like in a city or in a very like closed off area where you can leap off of walls and stuff prince of stride felt more of like an open park kind of but there wasn't really a lot to go off of at that point so it was kind of felt very blank because at that point like all the characters are just doing is just leaping from tall heights and just rolling on the ground and they're fine oh that's not as fun yeah (laughs) yeah it's not as fun as like trying to squeeze through pipelines and stuff there's actually a really good a Chinese donghua that came out a while ago that had a really good parkour scene too. But unfortunately, I only watched the that specific scene on YouTube and not the actual full series to comment on it. Well, <laughs> I am glad to learn about Prince of Stride. I actually didn't watch that one, so it's really cool listening to you two talk about yeah. it and sort of compare <laughs> and contrast it. <laughs> All right. So thank you for sharing, Agnes. So now it is my turn. So basically, I also have three. I might not mention the third one depending on the time, but I think we might be able to fit it. So my first one is I think all of us have seen it. I know Agnes definitely has, but, you know, Isabel, correct me if I'm wrong and you haven't seen it. But I picked ID Invaded, actually. Oh, Oh, I still haven't seen it, but I know you guys like it. (laughs) Oh, dang it. Okay, okay. So. ID Invaded, I purposefully picked it because if you look at the posters and you look at the stills and overall you look at the design, it doesn't look very fancy. You know, like the designs look kind of simple. You don't have those beautiful eyes or like sharp hair or, you know, if we're going to talk about Sakuga, you know, like what's going on with Akabi's sailor uniform, my dress up darling with the way you can see the strands of hair move. Like it doesn't have any of that. But in regards to its camera work is pretty insane and insanely well done one of the first scenes that just stood out to me was in oh or i guess to explain it a little bit id invaded or id invaded i I forgot exactly the right pronunciation for it but they form worlds based on the mindset of serial killers and so and you can go into the worlds and try to like figure out who the serial killer is and Essentially, one of the worlds, the first worlds you start off in, it's kind of like broken up into pieces. So the world isn't like full where you can just walk across the floor and everything's fine. It's the floor will randomly break apart. And then the connecting window is like or the connecting door to another room is like several spaces later where it's just empty space. But you'll open the door and find yourself like at a different place. And the main character, uh, Nari, Nari, I can't even pronounce his name, um, uh, Suda-san. So. <laughs> but it's Nari, Nari Saigo. Akito. Actually, actually, that's easier. Yeah, Akihito. Um, but Akihito, what happened is at first when he was trying to solve it, I mean, it's Sudasal. That was that was probably one of Sudasal's <laughs> best performances. I just want to I say. think so. Yeah. But anyway, um, what happened was at first he thought the issue to solve this world is that he had to piece the world together again. And so that's what he did. He tried to use his long, elongated arm because in each world, you kind of have a different set of abilities depending on how the world is set up. And he used his long, elongated arms to like try to piece it together like a puzzle. And in that particular scene, it was the cinematography of the way that he was moving and floating around in space. And you get to see the pieces like come together from a bird's eye view. And then it just zooms right into the street because you see he's landed on the street and then it cuts to him running on the street and then it jumps he jumps up again to grab and reach for another piece and it's like this flawless uh, movement of seeing him running and then suddenly going into his perspective of running up the street and reaching for that big piece and that whole scene in particular was just so well done and that was the moment where my jaw just dropped because I was like this is incredible and it's not you know 
fancy fight scene sequences, you know, what you think of for usual animation. It's not gorgeous sakuga like you often see in slice of life anime. That's just straight up cinematography in that point. And I loved it. And the anime does it for every single serial killer's quote unquote world. Another one that is much more muted but stood out to me a lot was he was in one of the worlds where he was on this never ending train, essentially, or the train seems to like the train itself seems to be a circle. And if he walks, so he there's never like an end to the train. He just always ends up in the same place when he's walking up and down the train. And he realizes that it sort of symbolized how the train itself is just one large circle, just always moving and moving and moving. And it's related to the serial killer who is deeply affected by her mom's uh, suicide. So you find out in when he was exploring this world that the girls uh, that the girl's mom had thrown herself in, on the train tracks and killed herself that way. And there's a there's this way where the quote unquote camera works, where he sits down next to the girl who is a child, unlike the woman that she is in real life, and he talks to her very gently and she doesn't really say much, but you know, sometimes there isn't really much to say in that regard. Sometimes the sort of traumatizing thing is just something that no one really is able to recover from or, you know, does too much damage for them to ever become quote unquote normal again. And the way that the camera works from this intimate scene between him and the girl, just like sitting next to each other to the camera um, to next next to each other on the seat to suddenly a wide shot of like a zoom out wide shot where you see the entirety of the train and how it's operating inside her mind and how basically her own brain is going in circles, unable to let go of the fact of what her mother had done and how it affected her. It was it was beautiful. It was beautiful cinematography in that moment. It was very purposeful and it told the story perfectly with very, very little words. And so those are just like two of the moments in ID Invaded that I really love, but I think that it definitely nails down the cinematography. So what did you think of it, Agnes? <laughs> it's really good. I think the two scenes that you pointed out are really great at the cinematography and also kind of painting that weird eeriness slash um, subconscious level of the brain of all of these serial killers as well. Because the you can't go with like a very conventional cinematography for this otherwise you don't feel like you're in in an unworldly place Mm -hmm. i think my favorite cinematography is probably at the house with the serial killer with the female serial killer oh uh uh-huh i don't know why but everything about it makes me remember like it's a horror movie with the way that everything's kind of like standstill kind of weird side shots and the way that she like tries to kill herself as well too with the camera movement was kind of like jarring to me. I was like, ooh, this looks kind of... Oh, I see what you're saying. Like purposefully angling at a shadowed or at an angle where shadows would form more. I know what you're talking about now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was when it really struck me. And then of course, like the first episode too, because it's the whole like geometric part of ID Invaded of Akihito trying to grapple with the situation that he's he's basically lost body parts and he has to go retrieve it and he has to hop in between all of these like weird mind trick levels like what's that um that oh optical illusion it feels like an optical illusion as he's trying to leap in between platforms to grab all of his body pieces and piece together this entire mystery that's before him like who is Kairu? i know that i am da 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 and i need to solve this mystery kind of the motif that starts out with um but it's just very complicated i really i also agree with the camera work done in id invaded yay well Isabel, you should definitely watch it at one point. I know we're all busy, so. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to go to my second one. Let me know if you two have seen it before. If you haven't, I really suggest you guys do. But it's Land of Lustrous. Mm, I've seen a couple clips for Land of Lustrous. Okay. What about you, Isabel? Only seen clips as well. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) I cannot stress the cinematography of this anime. It is Every single episode is a cinematic, like, masterpiece. 
And first of all, this is a CG anime, but it's done so well because Land of Lustrous is, and I know some people have made comparison to Steven Universe, to which I'm going to nip that in the mu- in the bud right now. Uh, Land of Lustrous came out before Steven Universe came out. So Land of Lustrous is based on a manga. The manga has been a very, very long-running manga. So before people are like, oh my gosh, did it copy Steven Universe? No, 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 it did not. It was first. So um, just to put that out of the way. But basically, the characters in there are gems there. So the CG worked perfectly in this case because I don't actually think anime would have been as successful drawing out the texture of the gems for each of the characters if um if it hadn't been a cg who uh, cg done it and by the way the studio is orange which is responsible for b stars which is another great anime in which like cg is utilized perfectly for the characters but in regards to land of lustrous every single episode is just insane camera work there's a lot of just overall insane scenes that I could think of from the way that the gems break apart and the way the camera focuses on them, the way when the creatures from the sky come in to kidnap the gems and how it's uh, it's this wide shot where you see it, where you see them above the gems, so making you feel that forebodingness of they have the quote-unquote higher ground. And one but then definitely the highlights for me has always been with Daya or Diamond. She has two just gorgeous scenes. One of them was when she just ran across the field and it based the camera did like a 360 degree view of her while she's running where you can see the extent of her hair, her face and then to her back and like legs and sort of really realize the strength that she holds inside her and as well as how desperate she wants her strength to be utilized because Bort, who is her closest counterpart amongst the gems, or not her, sorry, there, there, her, their closest counterpart amongst the gems, they don't really have gender because they're gems, they, they don't understand gender. But basically, Diamond and Bort have a complicated relationship because Bort is sort of like the unrefined diamond in the gem world. And yes, I did do research for this because of this anime. <laughs> but <laughs> Bort is not as, like, on the hardness scale, Bort isn't as strong as Diamond is. But that being said, Bort is actually harder to break apart despite it being slightly less hard than Diamond because for Diamond... If you hit it at a very particular angle, if you know exactly which angle to hit it at, it will just shatter. Like, it will just crack and shatter instantly, making it seem very weak. While Bort, despite being slightly less hard than Diamond, if you try to hit it at a particular angle, you can try to hit it at all angles if you want. It's not going to shatter. It might just have a tiny, tiny crack. And it's because of the chemical, uh, the molecular formation of these two gems. And so... Bort is very protective of Diamond because the bad guys or the antagonists have essentially figured out that despite Diamond being so hard, if they manage to hit, if they manage to hit it at that at that like angle every single time, Diamond risks cracking and falling apart versus the fact that they cannot do that with Bort. And so Bort doesn't really let Diamond fight because the the antagonists have already figured out Diamond's diamond's weakness per se and like kind of like it's uh kryptonite if to be completely honest and so that scene where they were just running across the field and you get the strong you really just get that strong sense of desire from diamond that they would be properly utilized on the battlefield that they could be seen as useful instead of useless now that they their weakness has been discovered and obviously very very used by the antagonist it's just it's just really good there's another one with diamond where this creature attacks them and essentially it was also kind of like a horror film first because it was huge it was huge it was powerful and basically diamond knew that they didn't have a chance against it and the camera just follows like them hiding like behind columns behind furniture and you just hear the breaths of like the creature like nearby and and they're like close like covering their mouth not make a noise and stuff like that it's all these it's all these things and this is just two of in land of lustrous that i just cannot i just cannot emphasize just how incredible 
of an anime this is in regards to its cinematography. So yeah. <laughs> okay. So I hope you two will watch it because um, it is great and it is one of the best CG anime out there. So uh, those are my two. I'll mention my third one if we have a little bit of extra time. But since I like to talk a lot, I tend to take up time really easily. So uh, Isabel, why don't you go, um, you know, what are your cinematic anime that you would like to uh, spotlight? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, the first one I want to talk about, I've talked about this one before, is uh, SSSS Gridman. I oh, yes. You talked about the show. Yeah. Yeah. The cin- cinematography work in that one is very, I feel, kind of subtle. It's not noticeable by many anime fans where you might just be there for, Gridman is mostly known for, you know, the kaiju fights, right? Mm, yes. So, but the whole setup to that in the first episode and everything is so, it's it creates this atmosphere of being uncomfortable, I would say. And you know, for me, I, I don't really focus on cinematography or I don't, I didn't study it, so I don't know that much about it. But even as a viewer, I could feel that the awkwardness between the characters and in the world that they live in as well, especially when the characters don't really know each other. Our main protagonist has lost his memory. So there's a focus on that where he's kind of confused. And there's a couple of scenes where a lot of like, if you imagine the, if there were a camera for the anime, it would be behind behind other other things. So maybe a fence is blocking the viewer from seeing the characters. Oh, that's really cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, it feels like a very clandestine shot to kind of like give a, like a moment of secrecy almost. Exactly. So there's that space between you know the viewer and you. you you're basically trying to see what's going on and you're wondering why why can't i see it right or why isn't it clear and then and then if the characters are speaking sometimes there's also a distance between them so there's uh there's a scene where the two characters are speaking uh, with each other and in the middle there's uh the computer where gridman speaks and then they're just arguing about how one person can see it and the other person can't uh so there's like the computer in the middle and then two characters on both sides of that and then there's also kind of like other things in the way as well so the whole scene is kind of like cropped into that and it's very angular as well as them taking cuts of each other so the conversation doesn't even flow between them there's like if you imagine a vlog and you think of all the highlights in the vlog it's kind of like that the conversation keeps going but there's different cuts because you see the characters moving or you know posing in different uh having how interesting poses. yeah mm-hmm. that is a very interesting way of conveying like an argument between two characters instead of like one continuous fluid motion but it's like various cuts from different angles stitched together yeah exactly so and then they'll have that and then there are also a few shots in gridman where they kind of take an aerial view of the classroom when they're in the classroom and interacting with each other so you find it kind of weird so you have this distance between you and the characters and then when we're focusing on a human you know their emotions uh, there's like a really close-up shot it's almost uncomfortable as well because all of a sudden you're too close to the character as well Oh, I love that. Not not the off. discomfort <laughs> but like the choice behind it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just feel like it. I never thought of it that way. I wouldn't have noticed, but you you can feel that atmosphere, which I just feel like Gridman really does a good job at, and I feel like it goes you know unnoticed as well. So yeah, that's what I think about that. In terms of the fight scenes, it's totally different when Gridman comes in and fights the kaiju. He, the Gridman basically fills up the whole scene, and then it turns into kind of like a fight, um, and you expect you know the hero to win so everything kind of goes that way and the whole focus is on the fight between the two two sides as well um but yeah uh you know sss gridman um also had a second anime called sssss dinazenon mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and i really liked the first two episodes because i i was like oh my god this is just like gridman actually uh so they, they kind of mirrored each other as how the episode started so i really like that kind of um 
they start off with scenes of you know one character in each shot kind of and then um, the view of the city behind them so you get this sense of loneliness really or that person mm, just standing there interesting okay the scene, and setting the setting up the atmosphere i feel like it, they really do a great job of that mm-hmm. so if you compare those two is there one that you would prefer in cinematography or are they basically the same level of competence just utilized differently yeah i feel like it's utilized differently i think for me i definitely like gridman a lot more because okay. in dinosaur the other element is the story because it becomes to, for me a little bit more complicated because um because in Gridman, it was kind of like the group of students. And then there's Akane, who's the antagonist. And so, so it's kind of her role in doing that. In Dina Zenon, there's also there's this group of antagonists, kind of. And that kind of confused me. And there was like a lot of other characters. So I didn't get the same feel as Gridman. So I actually didn't even finish Dina Zenon. I, I just thought it wasn't as great. Or it didn't have that same atmosphere that I really liked in Gridman, where I felt kind of uncomfortable, but still curious about the mystery, and that 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 might that might just be the focus because I know in Dinosaur we kind of focus more on the characters themselves and what the heck they're dealing with on a daily basis. Right, right. <laughs> so um, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but yeah, there's definitely the background scene. So in Gridman, there's they're kind of living their daily lives, but in the background you'll see a giant shadow of a kaiju. And throughout the whole scene, I'm wondering, why do these characters not acknowledge that? There's a giant monster in the background. Do they not see it? And <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's Complacency, also that's also. what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, we might react differently if we live in a world where kaiju just casually exists. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea if I wouldn't want to live in that world. But, you know, if it is the norm, then I guess that's that. <laughs> All right, so if that is your first pick, what other picks do you have for us in regards to cinematography and anime? Yeah, the second one, I just want to focus on one scene from Death Note. Okay. Where okay. it's the potato chip scene. Do you guys know the potato chip oh, scene? Oh, <laughs> I think I know what, the, what you mean. Yeah. You need to describe it for me because I've forgotten. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, yeah, this scene stood out to me because it's the scene uh, for context light and. Light is being monitored from L. Uh, L in the investigation team. He decides that he has narrowed all the possible suspects to being someone on the investigation team or someone related. So Light is kind of fed up with all these, you know, things that he's being watched. So he can't do his job as Kira, and so L is kind of watching him through all the cameras that's been installed in Light's home. And so Light, in order to continue doing his job as Kira and also proving that he's not Kira or making a perfect alibi for himself, he grabs a bag of potato chips, brings it to his room, and pretends that he's studying and eating with a bag of potato chips. But he has put a little TV inside the potato bag uh, of chips. And... So from the TV, he can see who's being announced, like the news, and then he can write down names and still kill people. But, <gasps> oh my gosh, I remember yeah. that. Okay, okay. Oh, yeah, keep going, yeah, keep yeah, going. Yeah. <laughs> Finish it to its entirety. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole scene of him. Just Really, it's a really simple scene, I feel like, because he's just in his room pretending to write down notes, and he grabs a potato chip and eats it, right? Uh, and all of this is super dramatic if you go back to watch it because he, you know, there's the scribbling that he's doing and then the camera is just like focusing on his scribbling. And because even as funny as the scene seems to me, I thought it was funny and also kind of serious at the same time because to light, this is serious business, right? He right, needs to prove, yes. <laughs> he needs to prove to Elle that he serious is not business. Kira. <laughs> so yeah, so just like the camera just zooms in on his face and his eyes right furiously writing down things and he can't be he can't have you know any type of expression because l will probably see that as well mm-hmm. and yeah i can't ever forget also the scene the part where he you know takes a bite out of a potato chip and it kind of sparkles with like the crumbs i just thought that was hilarious because i'm like yeah eating potato chips is not that glorious epic, <laughs> epic. no it's not <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, here's the funniest thing. So that particular clip on YouTube is famous. It has 4.8 million views. <laughs> and the top comment is, in this anime, even eating a potato chip, you feel the pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, now that you said it, I, that was such an iconic scene. I can't believe I forgot about it. <laughs> Same, yeah. Oh gosh. It really is sort of like the framing of how they did it. Like, and obviously the music has a big effect yeah, as to why. Because the music was all dun 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 dun, you know, <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, but yes, that is that is a really great scene, and people on YouTube certainly agree. And if you guys want to laugh, you can feel free to read all the comments on YouTube. So. I just find it so baffling how he manages to sneak in a camera into a bag of potato chips. Like, how does L not see, you know, from the back perspective of this camera that's monitoring him, of L of, you know, light reaching for like a camera and then also reaching for a potato bag and then putting the two together, you know? Oh, that is true. Yeah. How did he manage like, to How do does that? he not see that? Huh. <laughs> but, you know, for dramatics aside, it is a really interesting um, usage of cinematography with the, the super close zoom up face. It kind of reminds me of how like you do um, zoom ups of like, uh, like psychopath killers and horror games and stuff. So you get that sense of like eeriness and dramaticism from those characters as they do whatever activity it is like eating a potato chip that's super mundane I, this legend can kill people do math and eat chips at the same time. <laughs> why not why not right he's a god at this point <laughs> oh gosh yeah that was such an iconic scene that oh gosh that was great <laughs> thank you for that lockdown memory lane absolutely uh, okay oh yeah you're welcome <laughs> So, do you have a third one for us, Isabel, that you want to highlight? No, yeah, those are actually the two ones I want to highlight. The third one, I'm, yeah, I'm not too, yeah, I don't have a lot to say about it. So, I want to hear the third one that you didn't get to speak about, Gracie. Okay, so I guess in that case, I will talk about my third one, which is March Comes In Like a Lion. Woo! <laughs> yes, I think March Comes In Like a Lion does a really great job with cinematography. It's, well, first of all, March Comes In Like a Lion has art shifts. I don't know if you guys remember it. It's been a while, but especially when it gets into, like, the inner depths of Ray's thoughts and feelings, the art can quite abruptly shift from the more, like, colorful, bright coloring that March Comes In Like a Lion does to, like, straight up black and white and nothing else. And... That particular transition has always just, like, wowed me, the way that they're able to transition that. But whenever it gets into the black and white scene, the depths, per se, of the character, there's a lot of, quote-unquote, camera movement when that happens, where it just feels like he's just trapped. His heart slash soul is, or spirit, I guess is a better way of putting it, is traveling along all these emotions all that once. And it feels like all these emotions are pounding against him and he doesn't know what to do. And when that happens, you feel like you're along for the ride and like going along with him in regards to how the emotions are like punching him. And you kind of feel punched as well yourself. And I just think that that does like a, such a good job in regards to portraying the characters and its inner depths using that sort of camera work and a brilliant art shift in that regard. Uh, another thing that the cinematography is very big on is anything related to water. Obviously, water is used to symbolize Ray as a character, but another fun fact is that water tends to be really associated with people who are autistic. There's actually research done as to understand why certain autistic children are very, very sort of enamored with water. Some There's been a lot of reports of autistic children just, you know, opening the faucet and just watching the water go. And Ray has largely been suspected to be on the scale of autism of some sort. And so to have that too. So water is a very, very big deal to the anime, to the character, and to the stories. And every single time there's like that bubbling of water, the sinking of water, or even just that focus of a water just dropping from the edge of the a cup because of condensation, 
the camera work during that moment is just incredible and really makes you feel the importance of the symbolism and this particular element to the story. So that's March comes in like a lion for me in regards to cinematography. But I know there's a lot of other stuff going on. So and I know you two did watch this one. So what did you guys think about the cinematography for March comes in like a lion? Yeah, I like that you mentioned the water and the bubbles as well. Um, there's, I feel like there's this, a scene where they kind of focus on bottles of tea. And I, I couldn't wrap my head around. I'm like, why are we focusing on this so much? And but it adds to like the amount of time it takes to play, you know, a game of shogi. Mm, yes. And, mm, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. There's that, and then it's something that I would only focus on if I'm really bored, right, with the bottle of water kind of thing. And then also kind of the shots where there's just maybe like a clock and it's just ticking. It's very simple, but like you said, it's there's this sense of like time and space and not only that, emotions as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I really like that focus. But yeah, Agnes, what did you think? You know, I didn't actually consider March Comes In Like a Lion for cinematography, specifically for water, because I was either more enamored with the idea of head tilts in a... In a slice oh, of life anime, yes. since it's animated by Shaft mm-hmm. for cinematography, or the fact that my brain still can't wrap around the idea of Nikaido's cats as shogi characters. <laughs> um, so my brain is like, every time I think of March comes in like a line, that particular episode of Nikaido trying to explain all the shogi pieces as cats to Momo just pops in my brain. And that's all I think about, like totally brain empty kind of moment, right? That was um, a great scene and a great episode. So it is justified. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's justified for its cinematography to be warranted <laughs> for that, but it was a very educational scene for me because I don't know how to play shogi. <laughs> okay, but you mentioned the head tilt thing with Shaft in particular. Like, do you want to like you know sort of expand on yeah, that? Yeah. So head tilts has always been a thing. I don't think it's ever been a thing for anime for like the longest time until it became a signature piece for Shaft. But head tilts have been and or, or using camera angles and panels to show like somebody cocking their head to the side has been used in a multitude of movies and video games as well head tilts are usually used to convey like curiosity or somebody trying to ask a question it's a very humanistic uh approach to things and also showing expression if let's say like a character doesn't show too many expressions on their face but they can convey it with like the tilt of their head or more famously in you know uh dramas or uh like murder stories or horror movies when the character kind of like tilts their head it becomes very eerie you know that something is wrong with them something's a bit deranged with them and that kind of perspective when the character like snaps their neck and looks at you from like the opposite end of the room really feels like oh my god something's going to happen and march like comes like a line the head tilts come as a very interesting way to i guess showcase almost um Ray's inability to express himself as openly compared to the other characters and maybe kind of lead into the idea of the autism spectrum as well where like he doesn't really understand a lot and his face is very flat as a result yeah no I see what you're saying now that's definitely I know you kind of sneak peeked it uh, on your sort when you were checking in in regards to our topic but and I was I I did really want to hear you talk about it because that definitely wasn't something I thought about per se. But when you pointed it out, now I'm like, oh, I I see it now and how that is camera work and also very, very, uh, a very powerful tool they use to sort of characterize Ray. And then also, you know, Isabel, when you mentioned the clock, that also was something that I didn't think about as well. But now that you say it, I absolutely do see it. And it's kind of insane how you don't realize the effect it has until you hear someone else say it, and then you're like, oh, that did have a huge effect in regards to yeah. the experience. And now that I think about it, I did know, now that I talk about it more, I did know somebody who is who who is currently autistic, and he also has a tendency to kind of like do head movements as well. Oh. Although I'm not sure, I'm not sure if that's actually indicative of all autistic people. I just know this for him particularly because I have interacted with him before. Mm-hmm. I do know that for certain autistic people, this sort of physical movement is very is a pattern 
that tends to show up. For example, um, one really consistent pattern is sometimes is autistic people will kind of shake or, you know, rock back and forth when they're sitting. Yes. And so, yes. and, and, and a, a funny, uh, not a funny note, but an interesting observation is that Ray's dad in particular was noted when he plays shogi to rock back and forth. And so that was some, that was not me who noticed that. That was actually an autistic person who noticed it when watching the anime and, you know, also deeply connecting to that moment. And so... I think the head tilt thing being, oh, that would be really cool, though, especially with the way that you're able to tie it in with your friend, Agnes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you're able to also note that, let's say, like, uh, his father, like, rocks back and forth, and it's somebody that you know who is autistic can testify to that or notifies that kind of brings more credibility into March uh, March comes in like a line is also an allegory to talk about autism at least on a more humanistic level rather than de uh, demonizing it as you know an illness that somebody has oh for sure for sure yes March comes in like a lion is brilliant <laughs> and yeah it's very subtle it's fantastic mm -hmm. and it makes me cry <laughs> <laughs> yes everything makes you cry <laughs> Hey, 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 do not, I will not stand for this kind of slander. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so that is our wrap-up then for our cinematography and anime. I love talking about this topic, and I love hearing other people's thoughts, but, you know, the story must continue because Agnes has found herself in a bit of a Beauty and the Beast situation last time, and so... Round gotta, two, probably? Question round mark? Two, we don't know. Yeah, we gotta figure it out. So, Agnes, you know, what happened? <laughs> yeah, at this point, uh, and I'm saying this very sarcastically, you might as well label me into bestiality because one, a mermaid <laughs> kisses me, and two, you have a wolf prince at me. So, I don't know. Take your pick, uh, viewers. Um, but in any case, after the wolf prince snaps on this bracelet onto me... I, you know, fade out of unconsciousness and then I reawaken in my bedroom in Paris. And I'm like, okay, this is one big hullabaloo. Um, I, my mom comes into you the room. You dreamed says, it. Oh, thank God. Yeah, I dreamed it. Apparently, I also, and my mom comes into the room and she told me like, you know, I've been kind of out of it after I came back to Provence. I like woken up and I was like really out of it. And she asked me like, do I remember anything? I'm like, no, not really. She says, oh, okay, well, in the last couple of days, we just managed to finish our vacation. You were just sleeping all day. We don't know what's wrong with you. But we assumed you were fine, so we just let you sleep all the time. Thanks, mom. Then, <laughs> yeah, thanks, mom, right? And eventually, you kind of woke up, and you are kind of out of it, and we managed to get you back into Paris. So all is well, I guess. And I'm like, strange, but okay, sure. And... As you know, she's getting ready to go work in the fall restaurant and I'm also getting out of bed. I hear the jangle on my wrist and I notice that it is the same bracelet that the wolf prince had snapped onto my wrist. At that point, my brain is starting to catch up with a lot of things and I'm starting to remember things and I'm like, oh my god, wait, so this wasn't a dream? Question mark. The funny thing is, is that the bracelet is like, it's made out of sterling silver and it has little divots inside of it that I'm not really sure why there is. There's no like jewel or anything in it. It's just little divots in this silver thing. It feels like a weird contraption. And I'm like, I, I don't know what the hell he put on to me, but it doesn't seem like it's doing anything bad to me. And for some reason, I feel like I have this strange attachment to it. So I just kind of keep wearing it like I would with any of my other accessories, like a hair tie or something on my wrist. So it doesn't really bother me at work or when I'm just out and about doing stuff. One day, uh, while I was working at the pho restaurant, this was maybe uh, a, a couple weeks later, I was confronted by my cousin to go see an exhibition at the Louvre Museum. I thought to myself, like, oh, well, if I have a break from the pho uh, uh, sweatshop, sure, let's do it. So we end up making a trip to the Louvre. The Louvre is not very far away. You know, it's a, it's a, tr it's a subway ride or a bus ride where I was. And the exhibition was from the was showcasing artifacts that they had unearthed in France about uh, Lady Isabel's of France, the she-wolf. And I vaguely recall hearing about it, like, are you the she-wolf of France? And I was like, mm, I don't really know what's going on, but sounds interesting. And I don't really know much about this, uh, this queen at all. So I go into the exhibition expecting to see a lot of, you know, old chalices, mm -hmm broken uh things a lot of like gold pieces that come from that era you know like if she was carrying like coffers around with her you know stuff that you'd see in a treasure chest and then at one point they showcase this 
magnificent crown they have befitting for a queen of that time in the in the showcase room and you know there's a lot of people up there they're taking pictures of it and I'm kind of drawn to it and I kind of wander up close to it and then at the top of the crown you know at the crest of it um you could see that there's something kind of green that's glinting in the light and my thought was that looks like an emerald crystalline. And for some reason, I don't know why my brain decided to say that it's an emerald crystalline. But the moment my brain thinks of that, something begins to vibrate on me. The wrist, the the silver bracelet on my wrist starts to vibrate with an intensity that I'm kind of actually starting to shake with it. And then at the top of the crown, the jewel is also trembling so much that it's suddenly, without any um, prompting, it literally pops breaks through the glass and immediately zooms and attaches onto my bracelet. And that's where we're end the story here because I ran out of time. Oh my <laughs> gosh! Oh my gosh! <laughs> that is an evil place to end <laughs> Yes, it is a very evil place to end here. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to us. I hope you enjoyed our talk about anime and cinematography. And I hope you guys are just as angry as Agnes at Agnes as we are, because that is a terrible place to leave us on a cliffhanger. So I hope you will see, uh, or I hope you will be with us next time. Bye everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.